0: hard hearts and hard words can lead to soft hearts today as we look at God's Word in 1st Corinthians chapter 5 we're going to see some hard words pinned to this Corinthian congregation and it will be my hope that as I share What I feel may be some hard words for us to hear, that it will cause a softening in your hearts, as it has in mine. Today, for our reading, rather than reading aloud, what I'd like you to do is to read the words on the screen silently, and then in just a moment, we're going to talk about them together. So, would you read to yourself the words that you see on the screen? This is the word of the Lord. Paul's hard words to this Corinthian church centered around what is translated sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia, and it served as an umbrella term for all kinds of unlawful sexual activity. I think it would help us to remember the context within which Paul is speaking. In that first century context, it was very common for older men to marry younger women. The mortality rates were very high in birth. And so uh, many times a woman would, would pass away and a, and a husband would, uh, would take on a new wife, oftentimes much younger than him. And so it's not outside the bounds of possibility. In fact, it's quite likely that there were many households across this Roman Empire, where uh, a father had taken on uh, several wives throughout the course of his life, through uh, through the death of his spouse, and a son would grow up. It was also very common in that context that, rather than in our our situation where every family has their own house or apartment. In the ancient world, families very much lived together in communal environments, and so it was very probable that a young son might be growing up into adulthood alongside of his father's wife, who might be very much his own age. And so in that particular context, Paul speaks, and Likely here, what had been happening in this Corinthian church was a man had either taken in marriage or, in very least, was living in a cohabitating, as we might describe, relationship a woman who was his father's wife. Whether or not his father was still living or whether or not they were married, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that that particular relationship was expressly forbidden in the Old Testament law. If you look at Leviticus 18, verse 8, or 20, verse 11, Deuteronomy 22, verse 30, or 27, 20, you're going to see specific examples that call out that particular situation. And they say, this is not okay. Now, Paul highlights this, not so much because of a particular couple violating God's law in this particular way. It wasn't that relationship That he's after here in this particular passage. It's the relationship that the church has with that relationship. If you're looking here in your text, you come to verse 1 to say that uh, this is widely reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Some translations will, uh, will translate that particular section to say uh, it doesn't even occur among the Gentiles, but we, we know that it occurred among the Gentiles. That's why the better translation is to tolerate, because other Roman writers around the same time will express their disgust, their abhorrence with that. Gaius, Cicero, and Catalyst each uh, lay out that kind of relationship as pagan non-Christians and say, this is wrong. It's it's horrible for that kind of, of, of intimate relationship to happen. It should not be. And so Paul's issue is not so much with that guy and what he was doing, but rather with that church and what they were not doing. His issue was that this church, this Corinthian church, had been tolerating something that God's law forbade and then even the foreign pagan culture around them recognized was not okay. And he says to these Corinthians, what are you doing? Don't you, don't you see that the entire mission of the church is compromised when you tolerate or accept that which is against God's Word and even the culture recognizes as, as immoral? it points to a a truth that I heard shared this week. Nonbelievers may be lost, but they are not stupid. And so, as Christians, as believers, as a church of God, we, we ought to examine ourselves. Rather than sort of responding in defense when we hear criticisms coming from a secular culture around us, we need to first examine ourselves, not defend ourselves. And look honestly and say, is there a place in our church where we have tolerated that which is contrary to God's Word, and is it even accepted in our culture? Now, it would be easy, perhaps, as we examine ourselves, to point to sexual immorality. Now, we could point to pornography and its prevalence within the church it's growing acceptance as something that is healthy and okay. Or we could point to cohabitation, living together, couples living together before marriage and, and, and see the rates of cohabitation uh, mirroring in the culture that which is in the church. We could, we could point to those, but that's not the application that would come out of this text because here in those particular instances, our culture has said, that is a-okay. There's not a problem there, and there's no conflict uh, with, uh, with the culture in that regard. The secular culture's happy to endorse that. And so it would be too easy of us to sort of let ourselves off the hook and say it's in this area of sexual immorality. While we will need to listen to that, and it will come up as we continue through 1 Corinthians, that's not the issue that I think we have to face today. What is it that we accept in our church that even our culture does not tolerate, and God's Word forbids. Well, let me point you to another statistic. Derwin Gray, author of H.D. Leader, writes this, 86% of evangelical churches are segregated on racial and economic lines. Let me read to you an excerpt from an article published by LifeWay, which is the largest publishing organization for Baptists in the world. They did a survey examining attitudes about race within uh, churches just like ours who utilize their resources. And here's what they've said. I quote, Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours in American life with more than 8 in 10 congregations made up of one predominant racial group. And most worshipers like it that way. Two-thirds of American churchgoers, 67%, say their church has done enough to become racially diverse, and less than half think their church should become more diverse. Churchgoers, researchers found, are lukewarm about diversity, More than half, 53%, disagree with the statement, my church needs to become more ethnically diverse. Four in ten agree. Researchers also found churchgoers who oppose more diversity do so with gusto. A third, 33%, strongly disagree that their church needs to be more diverse. More than 4 in 10, 42% felt strongly that their church was doing enough. And let me read one last line that perhaps underscores it most clearly. Evangelicals, 71%, are most likely to say their church is diverse enough, while whites, 37%, are least likely to say their church should become more diverse. African-Americans, 51%, and Hispanic-Americans, 47%, were more likely to say their church needs to be more diverse. Is there an issue in our church that we tolerate despite the fact that God's Word forbids it and even our culture says it's not okay? Well, I can't escape the conclusion that there is. The New Testament was birthed out of a conflict between Jews and Gentiles, two different races, trying to figure out how to be one family together under the lordship of Jesus. We have our Bible because of this issue. And the call in the first century to say it's not okay for there to be two different racial churches, there must be one. Our church has a complicated past with this subject. We rightly celebrate our history and the great legacy that we have here. We historically have had leaders from across the city who have participated and been active members at Columbus Avenue. There are seasons where every major businessman in town was associated with Columbus Avenue. But that's what makes our past so complicated, because that means that in 1916, just down the street from here, when Jesse Washington was unlawfully and illegally executed, lynched, and a massive crowd of white businessmen and women from across Waco stood around, that in that crowd were Columbus Avenueers, not stopping, not lending a hand, but participating in that moment. It means that in 1951, when three African-American businessmen came back from the war and decided that in Waco there needed to be a theater where African-Americans could come and just enjoy the movies without having to sit in the balcony, and they wanted to build a theater where where blacks could go and not have to worry about uh, about the oppression and words and the looks that were going to come to them. And so they went to businessmen within the city of Waco and, and asked for a loan to get this business started. And they were turned down at every single point And were forced to go outside of Waco to find funding for the Alpha Theater that is now located across the river. We've got a complicated history with the subject because those businessmen are part of this church. And unfortunately, the, the proof of this issue is even in our own documentation. This is our 100 Years of Service book, which celebrates the legacy at Columbus Avenue. But when you look through this book, it's not until 1977 that you see a picture of this congregation that has a single African American in it. That's a, that's a problem. It's a thing. It's a thing. And it doesn't help us to just ignore it. Now around here, particularly over these last few weeks, a lot of y'all, and even folks in our city, have been celebrating the contributions of Dr. Leo Day, leading worship right here at Columbus Avenue. We love him. He's a great leader. And people have have continued to express how much they appreciate his contribution and how grateful they are to see him and how surprised they are that that would happen here. And that illustrates the point, doesn't it? That folks would be surprised to see an African American leading at the highest levels here at our church. Doesn't it betray the inner assumption that African Americans, as a general rule, can't or won't lead in areas besides sports. We have a complicated history and a painful present, and just like this Corinthian church that Paul says, why are you not mourning what's happening, we also ought to mourn the missing contribution of our African-American and Hispanic and Chinese and others who aren't leading here the way they should. Now, some will be saying, well, those folks just don't want to come here because they have a different culture than we do, and our cultures are just different. Well, that's true. But it also raises the question, again, even more pointedly, It raises the question of what do we love more? Do we love our culture? Or do we love our brothers and sisters of another culture? Jesus died to bring into one family men and women of all races. And shouldn't we be willing to die to our own preferences to bring men and women to him even now. If if the Jews were required to give up their cultural supremacy in order for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, that's us, by the way, doesn't it make sense that white cultural supremacy may have to be sacrificed to reach the nations in the 21st century? Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't stop with calling out this toleration in this Corinthian church. He sees it as a surface issue. It's evidence of a deeper problem at work in the hearts of this church. And this issue that I've been calling out, that of tolerating a kind of racial segregation, it also is a surface issue. And, and we have to bear down deeper and face the core sin that would allow that kind of issue to continue year after year and decade after decade. The Apostle Paul in verse 2 says, And you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. And then in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Paul understood that for this kind of a sin to be perpetuated in a church, that it wasn't the, the sin in and of itself that was really going to have to be attacked. It, it, you see, this kind of sin... It is fueled by another sin. In the same way that oxygen requi- that fire requires oxygen to spread and grow, so also these kinds of sins require an oxygen. You know what that oxygen is? It's pride. It's the pride of our hearts that says, It's not my problem, it's theirs. It's the pride of our hearts that says we've made a bunch of changes. We've moved. They need to move and and do something on their end. It's the pride of our hearts that dismisses it as a mere political issue and not a personal one. Pride is the fuel that allows this kind of sin to spread. And spread it does. Like yeast going through a whole batch of dough. It requires a firm and resolute commitment on the part of Christ followers to see something change. And I believe that this is the kind of church where that change can happen. This is the church that before it was popular to do so would establish an international ministry, would open their arms to Southeast Asian refugees and uh, would make a safe place for them. But before this was popular, before this was what everybody was trying to do, Columbus Avenue was implementing it, forming the International Neighbors Program, opening arms and hearts and lives to folks from all different kinds of national and international and ethnic backgrounds. This is the church that's mobilized over a hundred mentors into a, a, a lower socioeconomic status, not just for an hour mentoring a kid, but whole families opening up their lives to share life with others from across a racial and cultural divide. It's our church. Our church that would adopt in a, a Spanish-language venue and say, hey, come, take, take our space, be one of us. We're not looking to, to just sort of uh, uh, let you be over there. We want you to be a part of our family. And, and we're going to change enough to even sing in Spanish sometimes. And we'll, we'll even have preaching in Spanish sometimes. We'll, we'll be the ones to, take that, to make that change so that you can be a part of this. If, if any church has a chance to move forward on this issue, then I think it's ours. We can move forward. But it will require us not being complacent about where we are. Continuing to say, Father, search my heart. Search us. And taking the two steps required to squeeze out pride. The first one is the most difficult. And it's simply to confess. It's to admit openly and honestly, I don't even understand what the issues are on this subject. I, I I, I don't know what needs to change in my life. I didn't know I was causing hurt or harm to somebody else. And I'll go ahead and go first. Every time that I have talked about this subject in our church, I have pulled the punch I've talked about us being the church at the center of the city and, and ministering across generational lines and ethnic lines and cultural lines, and what I meant was racial lines. But I didn't say it. So let me just confess to y'all that I've dodged this one because it's, it's uncomfortable and it's touchy, especially here in Waco. It's, it's a touchy subject. And so let me just go ahead and confess to you that I've not talked openly about it. And I've tried to talk around it and hope that you'd get the point. But you just need to know that if we are going to go forward as a church, the center of the city, then it means that we have to figure out how to cross these racial lines. And so we're going to learn together. We're going to submit our pride to God's Word and even to the voice of criticism from our secular culture around us. Who's right when they look at us and say, what are y'all thinking? The first step is to confess. And the second step is to make adjustments. To adjust our lives. In God's grace, he's given me some opportunities to practice that around here over this last year. One of my best friends now is an African-American pastor of a church not far from here. And we started about six months ago getting together for a Bible study, a few men from his church, a few men from our church, not to talk about race, but to talk about Jesus and to learn how to, how to live a life shaped by Jesus together. And it's been a powerful experience. It's helped me to see the world and to see God's Word in ways that I never would have otherwise. I was invited to speak at Tolliver Chapel, an African-American church here in town. And let me tell you, that had to adjust my preferences to go and speak into that context. It's very different than ours. But it was good and right. And it even meant that I would give my conference time this year to go out to Memphis this past week and, and stand in a crowd of people outside the Lorraine Motel at 601 and listen to that bell toll commemorating the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It was uncomfortable for me to be there, to look into the eyes of African American brothers and sisters and see tears and emotion and to recognize that for them, that's not mere history. It's reality. They still feel the weight of that. And I sadly, have been blind to it. It requires adjustments. And for our church going forward, the call cannot merely be to open our hearts to those who come. Y'all do that really well. We're an open and welcoming church. But the ominous clouds of inferiority that Martin Luther King Jr. so rightly pointed out will not be dispersed by merely opening our arms and inviting people to come be like us. It will require that we get up and we go to them and we form a new friendship, a new relationship, that we adjust our posture from teacher to student from leader to servant to lay down our preferences and conveniences and adjusting our lives to make room for people who are very different than us this can happen here in you and in me It can happen because in God's providence, He has called us to be His people, to hold up a gospel that unites us across all of the boundaries that this world creates. And if Jesus really is first, then we can set down all the other things That we want to hold to as first. Soft words lead to hard hearts. But hard words can lead to soft hearts. But that's a choice that you must make. What kind of heart do you have? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it would be a lot easier on us if you just wouldn't tell us the truth about everything. But don't take it easy on us. Help us to see the truth in our own hearts, in our church. And as we do, Would you give us the courage to lay down our pride, to humble ourselves enough to adjust. And we ask that you would do a work in us and around us and through us that only you can accomplish so that no one looks at us and says, wow, look at Columbus Avenue. But that everyone, us included, would look and say, wow, look at Jesus. Look what he has accomplished. Fulfill your word, making one new humanity through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. (sighs) mm <sighs>